You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Have you ever had the experience of joining in a conversation with a group of people who have known each other for a long time, only to realize there's something you're missing because of your lack of shared history. Perhaps people laugh at a moment that doesn't quite make sense unless you've been part of the joke before. Or maybe there's a tension that's present that is clearly a holdover from a conflict that you know nothing about. It could be that you felt something like this the first time that you visited an Anglican church. The words to say are all there in the bulletin or maybe up on the screen if you were at a different church, but it may feel as if everyone around you seems to know intuitively when to stand up and sit down, and the various parts of the service clearly have a significance that is not entirely communicated by the words on the printed page. Most of us have had an experience like this at some point in our lives, which is why we can relate to Michael Scott, the boss in the office, when he says, I love inside jokes. Love to be a part of one someday. <laughs> Today's gospel reading may have left you with that familiar feeling. If you listened carefully, you may have noticed that the Pharisees respond to the blind man's healing with a vitriol that doesn't really make sense if the story was only about a man receiving sight. And it's because they have a previous history with Jesus and this healing is really the continuation of a conversation that Jesus began with them back in John chapter 8. The key phrase that lets us know that this is actually a continuation of what happened before is found in verse 5, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This is the same thing that he said back in chapter 8, verse 12. While teaching in the temple, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees, when they heard this, were not willing to let this statement pass unchallenged. They recognized in it Jesus' claim to a unique relationship with God and a special prominence in God's plan for salvation. But rather than oppose him directly, they tried to catch him on a technicality. They told him, you are testifying on your own behalf. Your testimony is not valid. The law of Moses says that any testimony requires at least two witnesses. So Jesus' extraordinary claim required another to speak on his behalf. Jesus said that he had this witness in God himself. He told the Pharisees, the Father who sent me testifies on my behalf. And the Pharisees don't quite seem to pick up on the fact that Jesus is referring to God as his heavenly father, because they ask him, where is your father? But when Jesus makes this claim, the father who sent me testifies on my behalf, through the rest of chapter 8, there are a series of encounters that have at their heart the question of who has sent Jesus? Where does his authority really come from? And the answer to this question will determine whether John's gospel is good news at all. Because if Jesus is acting on his own authority, then his claims are empty, 
and he cannot lead his followers or us to salvation. But if he really does come from God, then according to his own word and his own claims about himself, seeing him for who he really is, is the only way to step out of darkness. So when the disciples see a blind man sitting along their route just a little while later and ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them about what it means to really see. The man is not blind because of sin. Jesus has actually made it clear in the previous chapter that it is spiritual blindness that is caused by sin, not physical blindness. Nevertheless, Jesus will heal this man so that some will have the opportunity to know that he is truly the light of the world, that he is who he says he is. His intention is clear when he tells the disciples that the man will be healed so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice how he once again brings up these themes that have come from the previous chapter. He talks about being sent. We must work the works of him who sent me. And then he heals the blind man by spitting in the dirt, making some mud and placing it on his eyes, and then sending to him to wash in a pool called Siloam. And at this point, John makes an interesting observation. The name of the pool that he's going to means sent. Throughout chapter 8, most of the times that Jesus refers to the conversation with the Pharisees about whether or not he is sent, he uses a Greek word that is pempo. Um, it means to be sent, kind of like the way that we would use it. You're just sending somebody out, and it means that they've, they've gone out from a particular place, and they've, they're on a, a mission of some sort. They've been sent. But there's another Greek word that means sent as well, apostello. There's one time in chapter 8 that Jesus refers to himself as being sent in that manner. And the difference between pempo and apostello is that apostello generally means that you're sent and given authority to do something on behalf of another. So if a king sends somebody out and says, you are my herald and you're going to announce to this town that they need to pay their taxes, they are sent in the sense of apostello. They're acting on behalf of another and they therefore have his authority to do what they are being told to do. And the pool, when John says the name means sent, it's actually that word of apostello, the same word that provides the root of our word apostle, one who is sent. And the blind man in this, even as John points out this, this word, this interesting um, language to us, he's showing us that the blind man is not simply going to be healed of being unable to see. He's sent out with a purpose to teach people what it means to see truly in a spiritual sense. Because this is the way that God has chosen to work in the world. It is the Father's intention to glorify the Son through those whom He has healed. 
not just of their physical blindness, but of their spiritual blindness. And our reading from this morning skipped over a large portion of the story um, with the, the blind man and, and kind of what happens, which is a shame because, first of all, I think it's one of the funniest passages in all of Scripture. Um, if you can't read the Bible and laugh sometimes, you're not reading it properly, I think, because the, the writers had a sense of humor. Um, and it also emphasizes throughout that the blind man's physical sight um, came back all at once at that moment where he washed the mud from his eyes, but his spiritual blindness actually was removed in stages. It took a little while for the process to be complete. So first, after he's healed, he's met by his neighbors, we heard this part, who have always known him as a blind man. And they're confused, and they think that maybe it's just somebody who looks like him, a uh, visitor from out of town who maybe is re a relative or something, because they know that the man has been blind his entire life, and they can't reconcile the fact that they're seeing a man who can see with the fact that they've only known him as a blind man. But he keeps on telling them, no, it really is me. I'm the one who was blind. And eventually they have to kind of take his word for it. And they ask, how is it then that you can see? And he tells them that the man, Jesus, anointed his eyes and sent him to Siloam to wash. But when they ask him where he is, all he can say is, I don't know. His spiritual sight begins when he acknowledges that Jesus healed him. But his knowledge is still incomplete. He can't say who he is or where he comes from. If you kind of see the way that the story is told, he actually probably never even saw him because he was sent away to wash from his eyes and it was only when he washed that his sight came back. He knows his voice and his name and doesn't know anything else about him. But this is important because it actually draws to attention something that's very significant and very easy to admit in our world. You are not Saul saved by knowledge of Jesus. It's not just knowing about him that leads to salvation. The Pharisees know more about Jesus and who he is and his background and, and the ways that he teach and perhaps the school that he's learned from. The Pharisees know much more. The blind man was simply healed, which is the way of things in our culture as well. You are healed by the act of Jesus by his work, not just by knowing about him. This doesn't mean that knowledge is not important. And you will see that his knowledge grows as the story goes on. But this is very, very important if we think that only knowledge of Jesus is what saves us. But as the word begins to spread, he is then interviewed by the Pharisees. They want to hear about this supposed miracle, and they also hope that they can catch Jesus in another error to prove that he is a sinner because they've heard that the man was healed on the Sabbath. So they ask him to repeat his story that he's already told to his neighbors. And as the Pharisees listen, there is a disagreement among them. Some of them say that Jesus must be a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath. And others say that if he really healed the blind man, then he must be from God. And so you can imagine these religious leaders bickering among themselves, trying to make a decision about who is Jesus, what is he really, and then they turn to the man who was healed, 
who has up to this point in his life just been a beggar by the side of the road, never someone whose opinion anyone would ever listen to, and they say, what do you think? And he's put on the spot, and he has to say, what does he think about who Jesus is? And he says, he is a prophet. He's beginning to see more clearly. By the time that the Pharisees come to him and they ask him this question, he's begun to draw his own conclusions about who Jesus is, who he must be. As he hears their debate as to whether or not he came from God, he knows this man healed me of blindness that I have had since I was born. He must be from God. And so he uses a familiar category in Jewish language to describe who he must be as a man sent from God. He is a prophet. But the Pharisees still want more answers. They're not going to allow this man to decide their dispute. So they go to his parents. They want to talk to somebody who's known that he was actually blind from birth. Um, and they do. They talk to him, and the parents will tell him, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was blind from birth. Yes, he can see now. But that's all they'll say, just the basic facts of the situation, because they recognize in the questioning of the Pharisees that are coming up to them that this is really an ongoing conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus, and they don't want to get caught in the middle of it. And so they say, go talk to our son again. He'll tell you. And at this point in the story, it begins to be clear that the Pharisees, for all of their questions, are not really looking for answers. They don't really want to know who Jesus is or what he has done. They have decided in advance that they will not see who Jesus is, that they will not recognize what he has done. They have gotten all of the evidence they need to acknowledge that he is from God and that he has healed this man but they're looking for an excuse, any reason they can find not to believe. They are still blind, and they are persisting in their blindness, choosing to hold on to their blindness despite the mounting evidence of who Jesus is. So when they come to the man a second time, you can kind of see already that this time, instead of with curiosity or dispute between them, they're coming and they, they are coming with telling the man what to do rather than asking him questions. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And the man's response is wonderful. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind... Now I see. In the face of all of their questions and their authority and their blustering, he stands upon his confidence in his healing. And he knows, I was healed. And that is enough for me. Begin to see what faith looks like in this man. It brings up courage. It allows him to testify to what Jesus has done. And the Pharisees who said that they needed at least one other witness to be able to prove that Jesus was a man who was sent from God have the man right in front of him testifying. Now they have the two witnesses that they asked for, but they still will not believe. 
They continue to try to question him further. They still want to find a reason to condemn Jesus, and they want the man to condemn him as well, because they know that his testimony adds evidence to Jesus' claims of who he says he is. And so they say, if we can silence this man, then we can make the testimony go away. But as they continue to interrogate him, he says, I've already told you how he healed me. Why do you keep asking questions? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> and this scene makes me laugh whenever I read it. When I was in middle school, I had trouble with bullies calling me names. And my dad actually gave me a technique at one point of like, ask them, like, why are you asking me this? Like, is it some particular interest that you have in me? Like, what's going on? And it actually got them to stop. His audacity is amazing, but his question is also profound. First, his answer suggests that he has begun to recognize himself as a disciple of Jesus. He asks the Pharisees, do you also want to become his disciples? He still doesn't know much about him, but his commitment has moved from recognizing him as a healer to recognizing him as one with wisdom and authority because he was sent from God and therefore one whom he will follow. And second, when he asks the Pharisees this question, do you want to become his disciples? It comes across in the reading as a rhetorical question, something to get the Pharisees to stop bothering him and asking him questions. And it's obvious that it's not the Pharisees' intent to become Jesus' disciple. But it's also the question that lies over the entire passage that is implicit in everything that they are doing. You have seen what he has done. You have your two witnesses. Will you see who he is? Will you choose to follow Jesus? And the Pharisees in the mercy of God, have another opportunity from the words of this man who was blind to say yes. They have an opportunity to step from darkness into light. The offer is genuine. Do you want to be his disciples? But sadly, the Pharisees reject him. The man who can see recognizes their stubborn refusal to see what is right in front of them. And that's where he says, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In the story, the way that it's told, the Pharisees don't actually refute him. They just get angry. They can't stand to have their blindness revealed, and they refuse to step into the light. So they kick him out of their presence. And while they insist on their position of blindness, the man is more and more clearly articulating who Jesus is and what he has done. He's living into the role that Jesus gave him as one who is sent. He has become an apostle. 
one who is proclaiming what God has done on his behalf. And once he's been cast out, Jesus finds him again. I said earlier that knowledge is important, and knowledge grows with faith. And Jesus is going to grant him the knowledge that will support his faith. He asks the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And it's not clear at this point, after that first question, whether he even entirely recognizes that this is the man who healed him. But Jesus says, you have seen him. What an amazing thing to say to a man born blind. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This is an incredible moment in the Gospel of John. In a Jewish context, it's absolutely unthinkable to worship anyone other than God. In the Old Testament, even angels who were sent as messengers from God and shown with glory, if they received worship from a human, they would say, no, don't worship me, don't fall down and worship me. Worship God, give him glory. But this man falls down and worships, and Jesus receives his worship. He's one of the first people recorded anywhere to worship Jesus. Even before the disciples who followed him each and every day, they didn't get it yet. The disciples didn't quite understand, but this man, the man who was born blind, is the one person in this story, apart from Jesus himself, who can truly see. And this is the way of things. So still how God works today. It is those who are healed by Jesus, not just of their physical ailments, but of their spiritual blindness, who can see him for who he really is, who fall down and worship him. They are the ones who worship. They are the ones who are sent to proclaim the good news about what God has done. They are the ones through whom the Father has chosen that he will glorify the Son. And this is who we are made to be. If you have come to faith in Jesus, it is only because he has healed you of spiritual blindness. Through faith and the waters of baptism, scales have been washed from your own eyes. And you have become one who can see. And therefore, you have also become one who is sent. Sent into the world to tell of what God has done. It is through those who have been healed that the Father will glorify the Son. It is through us that the Father will glorify the Son. We are to be His glory, which is amazing. And it raises the question that follows is, what does it look like to live a life as one who is sent, one who will bring glory to the Father. 
Some of that is revealed in the story of the blind man that we heard. Our first response needs to be to name and recognize what God has done for us. I think oftentimes we lose sight sometimes of how amazing it is. Maybe it happened a long time ago in our past that God brought us to see with eyes of faith. Or we have seen family generation after generation believe, and so it becomes something that almost seems normal because my parents believed and my grandparents believed, and of course I would believe. But every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ has a story to tell and a moment where God has healed them. And this is an amazing story, and it's one that you need to know and cling to as a remarkable miracle. If God healed you of your physical blindness, you would go and proclaim it over and over again about what God has done. But it is far more remarkable when He takes away spiritual blindness and allows us to become people who can see Him for who He truly is. Do not lose sight of how amazing it is. Don't allow the multitudes whom God has healed to blind you from the fact that it is still a miracle that we come to faith and believe in Him. That it is still only by His hand and His healing. And therefore we live lives where we recognize and acknowledge what God has done and respond in gratitude and thanksgiving. We don't hide it. We don't keep it a secret to ourselves. We give thanks to God for what He has done. And we worship. Worship in the story was the culmination of the blind man being able to see. It was the moment where you could see that the spiritual blindness was truly removed from him, where he actually saw who Jesus was in a way that no others did. If we see and know who Jesus is, we will worship Him. We will worship the Son because that is the Father's intent. We will give glory to God through what He has done for us in Jesus. We will look at the cross and fall on our knees because God has saved us. God has healed us. And in worship, it is in worship that we come to recognize and cement in our own minds and in our lives the utter uniqueness of Jesus, that He stands apart from all other teachers and healers, all those who have good advice, all those who would be somebody who would show you a way to God And Jesus is the only one who is worthy of worship. Jesus is the only one among all of those paths who is truly sent from God because of what He has done for us. We know this. Because He has healed us and removed the blindness from our hearts. And so a life of one who has healed will be a life of worship. Not just on Sunday mornings, but each and every day we turn our hearts and we worship because of what Jesus has done for us. We also will remember that if we are those who have been healed, we are also those who are sent. The particular office of apostle was something that referred to those who 
um, were there in the first century who had seen Jesus face to face. When we talk about the apostles, that's usually what we mean. Um, that's why Peter can, or Paul can talk about his apostleship as being one who was born out of time because he had an encounter with Jesus. But still, there's a sense in which all of us are apostles. All of us are sent. We are responsible for telling the world about what he has done. But it goes back to that point of gratitude and remembering, naming what he has done. The blind man in the story had utter confidence above everybody else, above his neighbors, above his parents, above even the disciples of Jesus, because he knew with certainty that he had been healed of a condition that no one could heal him from except for this man. And so when we ignore or forget how important it is, how significant it is that God has given us eyes to see in a spiritual sense, then we will also neglect our duty for gratitude, for worship, and to go out into the world as ones who are sent. And it is not only through words that we communicate what God has done, we also communicate it through the way that we live, the ways that are different than the world around us. Paul picks up the theme of light and darkness in Ephesians 5. You could sum up the whole New Testament passage that was re-read by saying, don't act like you're blind. You are people who can see. And your actions must match your words. He commands us, be imitators of God. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Pursue the things that are good and right and true. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. This is probably one of the commands in the Bible that is hardest to follow in our day and age. There is so much that we are tempted to set before our eyes, to place on our minds that is not good and right and true. And we convince ourselves that it's okay. Like, I know that that show or that movie is not really edifying. It doesn't really help me to think about God in right and good ways, but I can find some little glimmer in it of something I'm going to hold on to, and I'll sort of try to ignore all the filth to pull out the one good piece that I like. Paul says no. There's a lot that you're going to have to reject if you are going to follow Jesus and act as one who can see. There are people who will question you and interrogate you and, and try to find the one way that they can disqualify you for what you are trying to attest to. And they'll pressure you 
into doing the things that you ought not to do, because then you will be like them. As the Pharisees went to the blind man, they wanted him to condemn Jesus so that he would be like them, and the testimony of Jesus would be nullified in his life. But he said, no, I will cling to this knowledge that there is one who healed me. Youth who are here today, this is something you especially are going to face. Peer pressure happens at every age. It doesn't ever really go away. But it's particularly hard. We're trying to discern what is good and right and true. And there will be things that you miss out on. Things that people talk about that you won't know what they're talking about. Inside jokes that you'll feel left out about. Having no idea what's going on and why people are laughing. And you will feel a strong pressure to fit in and belong. But it is better to belong to the people of God. It is better to be those who walk in the light. Those words that Paul gives us are not just individual words to tell us how to act differently when there's things going on around us. They are words that are forming a community of people. They're words that are forming us as the church. Because we come together and we do have something in common. We have an inside knowledge that the world doesn't yet have. Not because we're trying to keep it a secret, but because we are those who have been healed. And we can give thanks and praise to God and speak of what he has done. This is the people who God wants to form and make. A people who look like his son. A people who recognize what he has done for them. So be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Allow the light of Christ to shine upon your life. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Through him, you can see. Act like it. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.